Welcome to The Lisa Show. Have you ever felt like you were pulling a fast one on everyone when you got into your dream university or got a raise or a special promotion at work or scored the winning goal for your soccer team? Well, if you know what this feeling is like, It's imposter syndrome. Dr. Valerie Young is an internationally known expert and author of the award-winning book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. Here to talk to us about this feeling, this idea, and to share her insights on how we can really reframe our thinking and to help start living our most authentic life. Welcome, Valerie. I'm really thrilled to be here. Uh, You know... I think for a lot of us, we have this nagging feeling, uh, and sometimes we give in to those thoughts, and, and sometimes we don't, um, and everybody sort of frames it in a different way. To you, the definition of the imposter syndrome is what? Well, it's actually, everybody calls it imposter syndrome, Lisa, and they have for, for decades, but the more accurate term is the imposter phenomenon, because mm. it's not really a diagnosable syndrome of any sort. Sure. But it was something that was first uh, coined by Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes. And what they found was that despite evidence of our abilities or accomplishments, that could be degrees or promotions or awards or positive employee feedback, we persist in this uh, often unconscious belief that deep down we're really not as intelligent, capable, competent as, think, as people think we are and that we're just fooling people. And that's because we, we chalk up our successes to things like luck, timing, computer error, you know, <laughs> right. or the sense that if I can do it, anybody can. Mm-hmm. I, so how prevalent is this? How many people struggle with this imposter phenomenon? You know, what's often thrown around, the number is 70% of people at one time or another, achievers have had these feelings. The more accomplished you are, it's counterintuitive, but the more accomplished you are, it can be higher. Uh, There was a study in the U.K. that found 80% of CEOs that they sometimes feel that they're, you know, out of their depth and that they're struggling in their role. And so where does this start? Is this always something, I, I would assume, in childhood? Well, it certainly can. We certainly can get messaging from even very well-intentioned parents uh, around perfectionism or, you know, know, always being outstanding in school. But I'm not a big fan of if it's not one thing, it's your mother. Right. You know, we don't. (laughs) Seriously. Thank you for saying that. Right. (laughs) Well, there's more going on. You know, if you are... Uh, students, for example, college students, as a group, they're more susceptible because their knowledge and intellect is being tested over and over. People in certain fields are more susceptible. People in creative fields, actors, mm-hmm. writers, um, you know, because you're being judged by subjective standards by people whose job title is professional critic. And also, I would say, if there's not a lot of people who look like you at, at school or, 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 excuse me, or where you work, that could be based on race or gender or, uh, you know, disability. You know, if you don't have that sense of belonging and if you're on the receiving end of stereotypes about competence or intelligence, you're also going to be more vulnerable hmm. to imposter feelings. So so what what's so bad about it? I mean, we all we all have felt it likely at some point. What what is actually the damage that's being caused by it? Great question, because imposter syndrome isn't just an interesting self-help topic, Richie. Feelings lead to behaviors, and those behaviors have consequences and costs, not just for individuals, but also for organizations, you know, for their employer or, or the university. So, for example, when you feel like an imposter, you have to find ways to both manage the anxiety of waiting for the other shoe to drop and to avoid being found out. So for one person, it might show up as... I refer to it as flying under the radar. So that's the person who doesn't speak up in meetings, doesn't ask questions in class, doesn't go for more challenging opportunities or assignments, you know, like head down. Right? If I'm just quiet, they won't notice me and they won't be found out. On the other end of that continuum are people who are constantly over-preparing and overworking, but hmm. not out of the requirements of the job. I mean, we have to all work hard, but for, for these people, it's more the sense that the only reason I'm successful is because I have to work harder than everyone else just to cover up for my supposed ineptness. You know, procrastination is another uh, coping mechanism. For some people, it's never start the degree, the book, the paper, or the painting. You know, if, if something's always in, in progress, no one can judge you. So these, these behaviors have costs. They, they do the job. Let me be clear. The good news is they work, right? They, they help us avoid being found out, but we pay a price for, for that protection. And so how do we recognize this kind of behavior in ourselves and when it is 
really interfered with the way that we're able to not only perform our jobs, but interferes with our self-esteem. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and for some people, there is a connection with self-esteem. For others, you know, studies find there's not a strong connection. In other words, I always tell Mm. people it's possible to have healthy self-esteem and still have imposter feelings. Uh, I think we just kind of intuitively know. Well, let me let me be good. If you're a workaholic, you may not intuitively know, right? I've had managers tell me that they had to pull somebody aside on the team who was over-preparing and being, you know, really, you know, obsessive perfectionist on things and tell them to, to knock it off because they were slowing the whole team down, obsessing about things that really weren't that important. So sometimes we kind of figure it out ourselves and sometimes somebody points it out to us. So let me ask you this. Knowing that we all experience, we have some interplay with the imposter phenomenon at some point, I would like to not have it anymore. It is a thing that on occasion can be crippling, uh, whether it be that I just feel like I can't do it or I shy away from the thing or when I'm in the moment and I should be finding joy because of that thing, I just am so anxious that someone is going to find out how, quote, phony I'm being or an imposter I'm being. So how do we rid ourselves of this? You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that last point, Richie, because it really does rob us of joy and of pride in our work. You know, when we succeed, we feel relief, where we should, you know, relief mm-hmm. that we weren't found out. Yeah. Right? So we fooled them again. Um, you know, I think we can keep it super simple. I think the first thing we can do is to normalize these feelings. I mean, if 70% of people have these feelings, this is where I have to break it every, to everybody that you're not special. <laughs> right? A lot of people feel Aww. this way. <laughs> but, but the question is, like, what's up with the other 30? Like, why aren't we studying them? There are hundreds of dissertations, if not thousands of dissertations on imposter syndrome. Well, some part of that 30 have a whole different issue going on, irrational self-confidence syndrome, right? Their belief in their knowledge and abilities far exceeds their actual knowledge and abilities. We don't want to even think about them. We'll put them on a shelf. But there's some part of that 30% who are genuinely humble, but they have never felt like imposters. Hmm. And I think it's important to recognize that group because people who don't feel like imposters, they may appear to us to be more confident, which we confuse with being more competent. But indeed, they're no more intelligent, capable, competent, talented than the rest of us. It's just in the exact same situation where we might feel like an imposter, they're thinking different thoughts. And so, which is great news. That is great news. Think like them. Well, and if we want to be more like them, what are the different thoughts that they're thinking or the behaviors that they're exhibiting that we could sort of uh, maybe (laughs) pattern, uh, you know, our our lives? towards, or at least make it a little bit more of the goal. Yeah, well, they think differently about a few things. They think differently about competence and what it means to be competent. They think differently, respond differently to failure, mistakes, and criticism, and they think differently about fear. So, for example, um, around around, uh, competence, for example, they don't, people who feel like imposters often feel like we need to know 150% before we start our business or grow our business or go for the promotion, people who don't feel like imposters go, well, you know, I, I think I've got a you know, decent handle on this, or I've got six out of ten of the job requirements. I'll jump in and figure it out as I go along. So, so I want to ask you this, because can both live within an individual? Can you be both uh, con- confident and not feel this and also in some areas just feel this almost in a crippling way? Yeah, I mean, there are people who feel it in a crippling way. I think that you're right. There, there's kind of degrees of it. For uh-huh. some people, it's just this kind of nagging self-doubt, decide and keep going. But for other people, it really does undermine their ability to achieve, achieve their goals in their life. Wow. I, I It's such an interesting idea because I think that most people talk about it anecdotally, right? Like, yeah, I know I have this, but then to go to the next step of saying, well, I, maybe there is some benefit for me to reframe how how I how I see myself is another thing. And, and while we have you, you know, Dr. Young, you have written about this. You've written a book about imposter syndrome. And, and I appreciate you setting up this argument for for not only what it is, but what characteristics and effect the imposter syndrome will have. And I'm wondering how how it can it, how we can have the conversation 
to expand so we can support others. For example, I'd love to ask you about what leaders can do, what managers can do to not only recognize it in um, those on their team, but how to encourage them to have like, you know, the, that, that healthier outlook. Yeah, that, that's a great question because I, I always tell people, you don't have to feel like an imposter yourself to, to learn about it. And if you manage, mentor, teach, train, parent other people, you need to understand imposter syndrome because it does have consequences you know, for, that go beyond the individual. So for managers, for example, if, if they've had these normal feelings, they can talk about them. But not in that confessional, oh, my God, I feel right. like such an imposter, <laughs> but more like walk out of the big client meeting and go, oh, man, that was a major imposter moment. <laughs> and their direct report says, what's that? Oh, you haven't heard of imposter syndrome? Oh, it's really normal. Some of the most successful people on the planet feel this way. You know, so to talk about it in an offhanded, matter-of-fact way, I think you just raise it in staff meetings. Has anyone ever heard of this? Yeah, it's really common, and that, will, that alone will liberate a lot of people. Let me let me give you a caution. Sometimes I'll, I speak to a lot of major corporations, you know, it was Google or, or Microsoft or Procter & Gamble, and often somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, wow, this is great. I'm going to go back and tell my boss that I feel like an imposter. Hmm. You know, what do you think? And my response is, well, no. what what are your goals? Like, yeah. What do you hope <laughs> is going to come out of that? And can you get that somewhere else? Because I, you know, I don't know them. I don't know their boss. I don't know their performance. I don't know how long they've been there. I don't know if that would bias the boss towards them. Mm-hmm. So my advice is always to do what you want, but know what you're doing. Tell me, the the uh, the book is The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome. Is this something that occurs more often in women? Yeah, let me say horrible title, Richie. I didn't pick it. Yeah. I didn't want it. I was going to say that's reasons. a subtitle and a subtitle and a whole title. And, you know, you you address from the very beginning that you want to call it the imposter phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The question still remains, is, is it m- more prone to occur within women? Yeah, women as a group are more susceptible for a host of reasons, uh, and I think it holds women back more. But that said, there are many men who painfully experience uh, imposter feelings. So for that reason alone, I don't like the title. I also don't like the title because a lot of people, when when you hear successful women, you think the CEO of a company or Mm -hmm. the head of a country. Mm -hmm. You don't think about the first-year student in engineering at the local university or somebody just starting out in their business or an Mm -hmm. artist. Um, So I think it kind of conveys this image. Personally, if I saw that title, I'm not that curious Mm -hmm. (laughs) about women's successful thoughts, (laughs) successful women. So I think that's that's problematic. Well, so then that answers the question that we can't judge a book by its cover. What do we find within the the um, the construct of the book? Is it if we find ourselves struggling with this imposter phenomenon, are you going to help us find our way through it? Is it case studies in this is this is what this looks like and identifying it? What what can we gain? Yeah, no, I don't use that case study model, and I, and I think it's just me personally. I mm-hmm. never. If, I, if somebody doesn't resonate with Bob, a senior manager at 53, you know, if you don't identify with the case study, it's hard to get the big takeaway, I think. So, no, not about case studies. It's about really getting people to rethink, for example, my favorite chapter is Chapter 6, the Competence Rulebook for Mere Mortals. Hmm. Um, I also have a chapter that looks at the, the actual the legitimate role that things like luck, timing, connections, personality play in success. You know, very often people who talk about imposter syndrome, they say, make a list of all of your accomplishments. Like when you feel like an imposter, then go review your list. Well, I know my accomplishments. So, yeah, that might give you a momentary kind of bump. But the reality is, what if I did get a lucky break? What if I was in the right time at the right place? What if I, you know, I do have a great personality. (laughs) Like these things are factors in our success. So I encourage people, yeah, make the list and then maybe address how timing or connections might have played a role, but what you did to follow through. Is this something that you struggle with, Valerie? Oh, yeah. I mean, the reason I I started looking at imposter syndrome, you know, decades ago was I I was a graduate student, a doctoral student at the same university where my mom was working as a second shift janitor. And by the way, first-generation college students and professionals are also more likely to have imposter feelings. Yeah, so I definitely, uh, this is not a a theoretical uh, construct (laughs) for me at all. 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your research and your perspective with us, Dr. Valerie Young. My pleasure. Dr. Valerie Young has been made a difference in the lives of many, and we hope you were able to find a sort of a new way to reframe your thinking and uh, and the way that you think about imposter phenomenon. To learn more, you can go to her website, impostorsyndrome.com. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. As one famous meme says, cleaning the house with kids in the house is like brushing your teeth when eating Oreos. Right? <laughs> I haven't seen that. <laughs> Have you not no. seen that? And and I and Irma Bombeck once said something very similar, the fact of like, hey, cleaning your house um, when you have little kids is just like shoveling this this snow walkways while it's snowing. It's just, you know, what what are you doing? Now, I have, I have never had small children. Oh, My, I, I, I only had the uh, 11-year-old and then, you know, through teenage years. Yeah. So so don't pity me. No. I, I was able to have plenty of, you know, having a child experiences. But to me, it just seems like when I think back of, you know, family of five kids, like that we just sort of accepted a, a certain a, level, a certain level of just sort of mess yeah. or disarray. Well, you're not alone. Most parents, especially of young kids, tend to wonder if that fight for an organized home is worth it. I mean, you are teaching them and getting them ready for what they're comfortable living in and what's quote unquote normal for them at the same time. So I have felt the pull both ways, you know, like, well, I need to lower my standards a little bit because I want this home to be, a, you know, a, a calm, loving environment, not one that I'm constantly stressed out about. But at the same time, in when it is clean and organized and you can find things, I want them to get used to that feeling too, which is also calm and loving. So here to kind of help us figure out how to keep an organization uh, in your home and in different areas of your home with small children and make it really The impossible possible is professional organizer, Diane Quintana. Welcome, Diane. Thank you so much. So the best ways to really organize your house when your kids are younger is is one idea. (laughs) But I'd like to take a a step back and, and I'd love to understand your philosophy of how organized or how clean you think it should be when you have small children. I think that um, something that you said early in your introduction is really important to think about, and um, and that is that parents model the behavior. So if having a home which is clean and tidy, I'm not I'm not trying to say sterile because right, I'm, I but warm, welcoming, clean, tidy, where things are organized and order is maintained. Um, is your goal, then that's the behavior you want to model. You don't want to lower your standards just because there are children in your in the house. You want to teach them how you think that um, what what you think is a good way to live in a house. Okay. So if um, and it's all about your comfort level. So if you're mm-hmm. if you're comfortable having lots of stuff around. And um, and that's that's what is that's what works for you and your family. Then that's fine. the The trick is, I think, to teach them that it's really good to have a place to keep things because then you know where to find them. So if you're constantly hunting for things, or because or if things get lost in the um, in in the multitude of items, then then you're you're teaching your children that chaos is okay. Mm-hmm. How do we teach our kids it's, that then? How how is that mm-hmm. lesson demonstrated aside from put it away where you know where it is? Yeah, let's let, let's back up and go and and go through some really practical ways to keep your space organized. Sure. So in in your in the child's room, set it up. So that books have a place to belong. The Legos have a place to go. The army men or the cars and the trucks or the Barbie dolls or whatever the toy is Mm -hmm. has a place where it goes when it's not being played with. 
you can teach your children that it's easier when you play a game, you know, to get it out, play the game, and then put it away because then all the pieces stay together. If you get out one game, play with it, leave it out, get out another game, play with it, leave it out, get out a third game, play with it, leave it out, all the pieces get mixed up. Then it's hard to go back and enjoy the game because you spend so much time sorting it and figuring out what pieces go where. So um, to teach them that when you get out a game and you're finished playing with it, you put it away because the reason is all the pieces stay together and then it will be fun to enjoy another time. I think it's important to give the children reasons why you do things. The, the reason to not leave all the games out and together is because then it will be frustrating and overwhelming to find all the pieces that belong in that game or that puzzle. And um, and who wants to be overwhelmed? I don't. No. And, and I appreciate the fact that you are saying that it is worth it to give all the reasons why, even when they're young, to help them understand what you're doing and why you're doing it as well. We're talking with Diane Quintana, who's a professional organizer, about how to organize different spaces, especially if you have young children at home. Um Let's talk about timing a little bit. When is the best time to, say, reorganize or organize a kid's room? I think you reorganize it every time they hit a um, another milestone. So, you know, when they're crawling, you want to make sure that the sockets or, you know, the wall outlets are covered and that they can't pull anything down on top of themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. So as they're they're learning to stand up and they take those few hesitant steps, so, you know, walking around the room, you want to make sure that the edges aren't going to hurt them when they fall down or that, as I said, you can't pull the books on top of yourself or the or there, you know, no hazards. So you want to keep reorganizing the room to make sure that the room is safe for the child. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you want them to see you putting things back, like the um, putting their clothes away, putting the socks in this drawer, the pants in that drawer, the tops in that drawer, the diapers go here. You want, to, you want them to see you because children are so aware and they learn, I think, from the moment they open their eyes. They learn you, they learn your habits, and they learn by watching you. So when they see you putting things away, when they see you emptying waste baskets, when they see you doing all the things around the house, then they can model that behavior. So, Diane, how can I get them to do what I say but not what I do? <laughs> oh. <laughs> that, you I don't think, have to answer that. That's a that. hard one, Richie. I don't, <laughs> don't think I can answer that. You don't question. have to. <laughs> but, 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 but in a serious note, though, there are those of us who... You know, we recognize whether it was demonstrated to us and we didn't learn it or we just find ourselves to be a, a, a messier person. And, you know, we can kind of deal with our own messiness, but the messiness of others becomes too much. How 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 can we change that? What what can we do to start that process within ourselves to be able to demonstrate it to our children? Uh, I think you start small. You start with one habit that you want to change. For instance, if, if you want to, um, if you decide that a good thing would be to empty waste baskets, decide that on every Tuesday you're going to go around the house and empty waste baskets instead of letting them be full to overflowing. Um, but hmm. change one small habit at a time. Or laundry, for instance. Laundry is a, um, a bugaboo for a lot of people that it's, you know, we know you put you get it out and you put it in the dryer. The step that I think is often missing is that you fold it and then put it away. Yeah, man. <laughs> if there's an uh, understatement I, of the year, that's yeah, the contender. We get real good at cleaning them. Yeah. Yep. Putting it away. Yeah, putting it away. So I call that closing the loop. Um, laundry really isn't done until laundry is put away. And... Um, and so that habit, teaching your children to put away laundry, can be started at a very young age. You can say, okay, laundry is done. Here it is. It's all folded. Um, 
you can tell uh, Joe to go put, a, put his socks in the drawer. Or um, here's a stack of pants, put them on the shelf where they go. So by giving children small chores to do at a very early age, they learn that doing chores is just part of living in a household. Yeah, breaking it down into little Mm bite-sized pieces. Mm -hmm. That's right. One of the things that I appreciate about what you do, uh, in addition to putting up with me, is that you also (laughs) uh, help really address those younger-aged folks. And you've actually authored a couple of um, books for kids about being organized or being clean. Tell us a little bit about uh, the titles of those and and what, what readers get from them. Yes, thank you so much for mentioning them. We have two books. I co-authored them with another organizer, John Dabiti, and they are Benji's Messy Room, which is geared toward boys, and Susie's Messy Room, which is geared toward little girls. And the stories are essentially the same. They, um, they talk about the children have had a wonderful time playing in their rooms, and they have pulled out every single toy and they're overwhelmed. When Susie is overwhelmed, she sits on her bed and she cries. When Benji is overwhelmed, he throws a temper tantrum. (laughs) And so the mom in the story teaches the children how to put their things away by breaking the toys down into categories. And she says, put away your books and then put away your blocks. And she leads them through the room, teaching them how to categorize and put away different, you know, the different types of toys. And then when the room is finished, instead of going out and buying something, the children get a reward. Susie gets to go to her favorite ice cream parlor and Benji gets to have a um, play date with a friend. Now, a lot of... A lot mm-hmm. of our discussion has been about these sort of much earlier aged kids, right? I'm thinking mm-hmm. sort of either kindergarten or early elementary. Because you're starting good habits. Sure. But as mm-hmm. we as we progress and we have our kids in our homes, is there a, a book maybe in the works that's called, oh, don't you, you never want to go into Johnny's room. It's a complete mess about the teenager's <laughs> uh, room and what we Johnny, can do to help done them. Johnny, done it again yeah. is the title. <laughs> what died Johnny? <laughs> Yeah. But but in I'm seriousness, sorry, I haven't written that book. <laughs> no, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> what, what advice do you have for for um, those parents of older kids as they try and get them to to buy in? Whether that's that the parents have always modeled, you know, these organization or clean behaviors, or and they're not giving up the fight. <laughs> or parents have uh, changed and decided, hey, you know what? I haven't done a great job, and they are looking to be mm-hmm. a little bit different. How do we get teenagers buy in? I, um, I, I don't have any really great suggestions, but my, uh, what I would, but what I do suggest is that you teach the teens and even the young adults that working in a house or being part of a household means helping with certain things, whether it's helping with cooking or helping with laundry or helping with cleaning. Everybody has to be involved in the house to make it run smoothly and to keep it as clutter-free as you want it to be. Um, And I think that's a very important lesson. What I'm finding um, now with some of my clients who are young adults is that they were never involved in the running of the house. And so they really don't have a system for doing laundry or or getting dishes done or um, cleaning the house. And a lot of what I'm doing with young adults is teaching them how to, um, for instance, clean the house without being overwhelmed and spending the entire weekend cleaning it, breaking it down into doing a little dusting or a little bit of cleaning the kitchen. But I think it's very important to involve everybody in maintaining the household. I, th- I love that perspective because no one feels picked on. You know, you're asking a younger kid to do the same thing as you're asking an older kid or even young adult. Uh, and, and the same thing 
uh, as all of the adults in the house, that it doesn't fall, which it, it, it has historically and typically, and the research still shows that it all does fall, the majority on it, on the uh, the mom in the house, um, but having equal um, and, and a more equitable way to just everyone pitches in and participates is going to benefit everyone in the family. Yeah, I think so. I, I think that um, the house doesn't belong to just one person. Yeah. Everybody lives there. So everybody needs to buy into making it work efficiently and, and keeping it, as I said, clutter as clutter-free as you want it to be. Mm-hmm. Professional organizer Diane Quintana has been our guest for this segment, helping us to be able to organize uh, with whatever age our children in. But uh, I think the big takeaway for me is certainly we want to start small, develop those great habits so that as they get older, they recognize that they have a role that they play within the house. You can find Diane Quintana online at Diane and Quintana. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. It's no secret that running regularly has a lot of health benefits. Study after study shows that running consistently can lead to stronger joints, improved cardiovascular health, and even reduce stress and improve mental health. And yet many of us still lack the motivation to sort of lace up our sneakers and get running in the morning. So what is it that we could do to be more motivated Hmm. to run? Could it be that we need a change of scenery? Could be. Could be. Well, here invited into our conversation about running is Ricky Gates, a professional runner who's run on all seven continents and nearly 40 different countries to teach us about tips and tricks to trail running. Welcome, Ricky. Hi, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Thanks for being here. You know, Ricky, I have to, when I hear that you've run run on all seven continents and 40 different countries, I think that's a guy who would hate running on the treadmill. Oh, yeah. Is, um, is, is that, that true? Is that, in fact, the case? You would be very uh, accurate with that one. Um, I, if I have to, I'll run on the treadmill, but uh, I, I don't have one in my garage, um, and I tend to avoid them. There's, there's very few conditions out there where uh, I think the treadmill is the better option. Yeah. But, uh, you know, some people, if, if, if that's what it takes to get them motivated, then, I, then I've got nothing against it. Yeah, but it's also an encouraging thought because some people think, why would I want to start running outside? I hate the treadmill. mill, And it might just be, oh, yeah, lots of people do, even a professional runner. So I actually think it's pretty encouraging. Um, when we talk about trail running, though, that's a little bit different than just on the pavement, so to speak. Um, when... If someone is trying trail running for the first time and it's something that they're not experienced with, what do they have to prepare um, and how is it a little bit different than just running in your neighborhood? Well, uh, I, I kind of find that it's not all that different, really. Um, it's If you're just getting started, uh, I think what's most important is to, to not set your expectations too high. Um, you know, I think a lot of people out there, they get motivated by these ultra marathons or they see some videos on YouTube and they want to go out there and run uh, 20 or 30 or 50 miles uh, through the mountains. And I think that's how people end up getting injured. And also uh, even worse is how people get discouraged. So kind of my recommendation is, is to just start off, uh, start off easy. Go find a, a local trail. Um, and don't be too hard on yourself. Get out there, and if if it means starting off hiking and then switching into a jog a little bit, then and then switching back to hiking, um, I think that's a wonderful recipe for for getting into the sport. So, how can you get the most out of your trail running experience? Um, I think just being present. Uh, you know, we we have our phones with us pretty much all the time these days, and it can be a really helpful tool uh, for trail running uh, in terms of finding trails and tracking your run. Um, but to mostly just be out there and, and keep your phone in your pocket, try and keep it away and, and just be present. So uh, for me, that means uh, paying attention to one or two uh, strides ahead of me um, and then uh, and then going from there and just kind of paying attention to, to what's around me. I mean, the, the beauty of trail running is that you're out there in, in nature or, or uh, some form of nature, 
Um, and that can mean listening to the birds, uh, seeing new plants and flowers, and uh, really experiencing the condition. So um, really, for me, it's about being present. When I think about trail running, the thing that comes immediately to mind as the most important thing is footwear, wearing yeah. the proper mm-hmm. shoes. I Am learned I, that the hard way. <laughs> are we accurate that that would be the most important consideration? It's certainly one of the most important considerations. I, I wouldn't, uh, if someone has just one pair of shoes um, that, and that's what's holding them back from going out for a trail run, then then I would say that that's not the most important. Motivation is the most Mm. important. But in terms of gear, a good pair of shoes is really wonderful to have. Um, I have a technique for uh, finding the the right pair of shoes for me. I I go and and I take full advantage of uh, the local running store or the REI, whatever is closest to you. And I try on one shoe on one foot and then a different shoe on a different foot. And whichever feels better between those two, I stick with that one. And then I move to a different pair and try that on the other foot. I find that is extremely helpful for for narrowing down which shoe is going to feel the best. Um, I don't think that uh, like extreme traction on the bottom of your feet is essential to trail running, uh, but it can certainly be pretty helpful. uh, And depending on where you live, if you've got more mud or dirt or, or whatever it might be. Talking with Ricky Gates, who is a professional runner, about uh, trail running. When you were talking about how you pick the perfect shoes and you put one of one kind on a foot and one mm-hmm. of another kind on another foot, I was hoping that that story ended with you. And I run out of the store, and whichever one <laughs> that I take off to throw at the people coming after me, that's the one that you would. No. In addition to the shoes um, that we, <laughs> when we talk about gear for trail running, how important are things like socks or people would say like a camelback and to be able to stay hydrated? What else do yeah, we need to know? Yeah, what other equipment? Yeah, so this is kind of as you uh, progress further into the sport, uh, as you increase your mileage, there's no doubt about it, and, and I will spare you the details, but socks are very, very important. I learned that the hard way. Um, when I ran across the country a couple of years ago, uh, um, proper sock maintenance uh, and, and lack thereof can certainly do a number on your feet if you're not careful about it. Um, and then, uh, as you mentioned there, uh, you know, the, the kind of the brand name that started it all was Camelback uh, back in the day. Um, it has become such a huge part of trail running that nearly every company out there has a really wonderful uh, form of uh, hydration vest wear. Um, I run for Solomon Running, and, and they've got a great line of, of uh, running vests out there. But uh, these are all uh, essentially very, very small and tight-fitting backpacks that uh, are geared for holding water and food and perhaps your phone uh, close to your body, uh, up around your torso. Uh, that can allow you to take anywhere from a half liter to a liter and a half of water, uh, food for uh, a few hours or an entire day out there, and possibly some other running accessories that, that might help you stay longer out there. Because that's, that's ultimately the goal um, with, with trail running is figuring out how to, to stay out uh, on the trails for as long as possible. Well, and you mentioned earlier, you have a lot of experience and expertise on this. Uh, I'm curious as to what made you decide to run across America and wh- what really you know, got you into trail running. Well, those are, those are two different things. Uh, I got into trail running because I grew up in the Rockies. And uh, when I grew up there and on the running team, we just called it running. There was no real distinction between trail running and road running. Uh, it just made sense to hit the trails because that's what was out the back door. Um, and I, I grew to love it uh, in my 20s and, and, and late 20s. I started competing in it both here in the States and then abroad. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Europe racing on the trails and in the mountains there. Um, it was uh, by the time I got to my early 30s when I had been running for quite a while, uh, racing all over the world, um, loving it, but also kind of wanting something more out of the sport than just uh, athleticism, and that's when I decided that I would run across the country. I was, this is 2017, I was um, a little bit confused at, at where the country was going, and, and I wanted to get to know uh, my, my fellow uh, compatriots uh, on a face-to-face and, and uh, step-by-step basis, and so uh, 
I set off from Folly Beach in South Carolina on March 1st of uh, 2017, and five months later, I, I arrived at uh, Ocean Beach in San Francisco, uh, having covered about 3,700 miles and, wow. and meeting uh, a lot of strangers that very quickly became friends, and, and I gained a much better understanding of, of this country that, I, that I've been born into and, and that I've loved for my entire life. And um, yeah, it was, it was uh, an incredible experience. My hope for that is wow. at the end, two things. One, that you grew a beard and grew your hair out long. You just love the and, movie for us, and, and that when you were done, <laughs> you just looked at everyone else who was running with you and said, well, I guess I'll go home now. I would be curious, as you as you sought to, to learn about the country uh, and the people that, that live here, you know, what 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 sort of things did you take away from that? Um, well, to answer your question, I did grow a beard. Yes! Um, my hair did grow out pretty long. Um, I lost about, uh, and I don't, uh, mind you, have a lot to, of weight to lose. I, I lost 25 to 30 pounds. Oh, wow. I was um, a human skeleton by the end of it. Um, but at the end, uh, you know, kind of the conclusion that I came to is, you know, we're, we're oftentimes painted a picture in this country of, of, pretty severe division. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I found, you know, that we're much more similar than we are different. Uh, you know, if I were to put a number on it, uh, I'd say we're 90% the same and only 10% different. Um, you know, in, in an age of social media and other types of media, um, in, in politics, uh, that, that 10% can really be latched onto and made to appear as though it's much bigger. Mm. Um, so the the run across the country just really illuminated to me that uh, you know we have so much more in common than we do uh, uh, apart. It's such a connecting idea, and and it's interesting that as we talk about running and running trails, that we're always talking about participating or really connecting with other people. Do you do you find that you run in groups better or or is or do you sometimes enjoy a solitary run? Uh, to be truthful, I most of my runs are on my own. Um, I do really appreciate the the solitude and kind of the meditative practice mm-hmm. of, of being out there and listening to my breath and just paying attention to my surroundings. Um, I do uh, not not to put a plug on on my own running trips. I do put together running trips uh, here in the states and, and beyond Mexico and, and Japan, um, and that's an opportunity for me to put together a group of of runners and spend a week running together. So those moments I absolutely cherish. Um, I get to the opportunity to meet complete strangers and, and get to know mm. them quite intimately over five or six or seven days. Um, and, and I think they get quite a lot out of it as well, just kind of a, a gathering of, of like-minded people and, and having a shared experience and you know suffering a little bit together, but also taking in the, the beauty and the sights and sounds uh, all around you. It's, it's really quite magical. Oh, wow. People are starting to find themselves outside of their home. Spring coming on, you know, across the country. Weather's getting better. Uh, People may have put on a pound or two uh, during the time of the pandemic and they're looking to do something maybe that they haven't done for a long time or something that they have never done before. They look to trail running and I want to give you a, a, a minute worth of time to inspire those people to to head to the trails and and to give what you have now made a profession out of give that a shot yeah so the 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 thing that i'm most cautious uh when trying to get people into this sport is to again just be easy on yourselves um I think that people can be so hard on themselves. Part, uh, such a huge part of my job with, with running and trying to convince people to get into running or to even join my running trips is to, to just not be so hard on yourself. Um, like I said earlier, it's, it's so important to get out there. And, and if you feel like starting off with a hike, then start off hiking and then, and then move into a jog and then move back to a hike, whatever it is that, that gets you moving and gets your blood flowing and gets you out on the trails. That's, that's kind of my number one uh, motto is mm-hmm. to, just, uh, to just be easy on yourself. Uh, all of these things takes time and patience, and, and it's an endurance sport for a reason. It's not, uh, it's not just endurance over a single run. It's endurance over weeks and months and years. Um, so 
uh, I just highly encourage people to, to, to stick with it and not be hard on themselves. Well, finally, what's next for you? So I've got a couple things. Uh, after I ran across the country, I, I, it had kind of occurred to me that my, uh, my journey through America was, was primary, primarily rural. Um, so I was living in San Francisco at the time and decided to take on a project that I called Every Single Street, which was to run every street in San Francisco to kind of get a better sense of a more urban America. Hmm. Um, so that was a couple years ago, about 1,300 miles over the course of five or six weeks. Um, and I've taken that project uh, to my new hometown where I'm living now in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, and getting to know this this new city uh, on the same basis, which is a, a lot of fun and, a, and another great way to get into shape and get to know this town that I'm living in. Um, and so uh, I've also been watching it grow uh, around the country and around the world. Uh, a lot of people, especially during the lockdown, have taken on this project to, to get to know their own uh, cities and counties and towns uh, where they've lived and, and perhaps haven't known quite as well as they thought they did. Um, so th that's part of uh, what I've got going mm -hmm. on is doing that project myself here in Santa Fe, but also encouraging other people to take on that project uh, wherever they might live. Um, and then the other project that I'm working on is, is uh, called the 50 Classic Trails of North America, um, which is uh, probably more pertinent to our conversation right now. But uh, there was a book in the 1970s called The 50 Classic Climbs of North America, which was really inspiring to me as, as a climber and sort of mountaineer in my earlier days. And uh, I wanted to kind of take the same concept and similar parameters and, and kind of explore the United States and, and try and find 50 trails that I kind of consider might paint a, a, a complete picture uh, or as close to of a complete picture as possible of uh, this incredible beauty and in nature that we have in, in North America and Canada and Mexico and here in the States. So uh, those, are, those are the two uh, kind of projects that I've been working on and will continue to work on over the next couple of years. You can continue to see updates at rickygates.com. That's R-I-C-K-E-Y gates.com. Uh, Ricky Gates, a professional runner, has joined us on the show. He ran across the country, has mm -hmm. run on all seven continents and visited nearly 40 countries. Thanks for being with us, Ricky. Something that we all do several times a week, for some of us, sometimes maybe once a week, that we rarely talk about we almost kind of see it as very personal. Sleep. Or Are we talking so, about sleep? No. Mundane is going grocery shopping. Oh. Right? You like, go multiple times a week? No. I know lots of people who do. I prob I try to go once a week. You go once a week? Yeah, I do. Wow. I know. I used to when I had little kids and I would avoid going grocery shopping at all costs. Yeah. Because it was just so... Uh, I would try to go once every two weeks. Yeah. And I followed a lot of different in the early days of mommy blogging and things like that. There were a lot of, hey, just go grocery shopping once a month. And here's how. Here's how to keep your milk from lasting longer or eggs or whatever it was. Uh, and then I, I so I found, oh, yeah, well, a big grocery shopping every couple of weeks is OK. Mm -hmm. Now, because I only have two kids at home instead of five kids at home, um, I find once a week is better because – our schedules change so much from week to week, and I cook a lot less than I used to. And I think back, I used to buy six gallons of milk a week when good, I had all good these for you. teenage boys at home, right? Like, that's a lot of milk. And now the two that I have at home don't drink a ton of milk. So anyway, I'm just saying that our, our grocery habits change a lot. Yeah. We don't really talk about it. Yeah. So I want to talk about it. Now, listen to this. Okay, this this statistics stopped me in my tracks and made me sort of laugh. And I'm, and I'm wondering if it'll have the same effect on you. A survey said that 40%, okay, so 40% of shoppers. Two of every five. Put healthy items in their grocery basket to avoid being judged. So maybe you went in real quick to, to 
you know, buy that bag of chips or uh-huh. something like that. And then you were like, then I'll put in some bananas or some kale or something, too, to make it look like I eat better than I do actually do do, do. do they end up actually purchasing them or do they just sort yes. of like babysit them for the duration of the time in the store and then put them back at the end? No, according to the survey, they, purchase they them. buy them. In fact, 78 percent, and this won't surprise you, 78 percent, though, um, uh, of people who go into the so this is us all of us because we mm-hmm. all go to the grocery store buy more than they intended to buy when they go in. oh of course yeah yeah seventy eight percent and it, and it, it they said on average it it ends up being about fifty dollars worth of unintended purchases mm-hmm. now my justification is I will eat everything that I buy uh, yeah 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 it will not go to waste right but is that the right question I should be asking mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean um. And this is interesting going back to how we how we shop and how much our shopping habits at the grocery store are influenced by people around us and not wanting to be judged. Two fifths of us have what's called cart envy. Like we are in the line. We see what somebody else has in their cart and we're like, oh, oh I, I need to I need that. And we actually either leave the line or go out and find that uh, item. I'll, I'll be right back. Yes, right back. I forgot that pack of Oreos or whatever it is. Mm. Cart envy affects two fifths of us. I thought this was really. I love that there's a term for I that. I know. Now I'm going to use that all the time. And our, if we're aware of it, does that make us more susceptible to it? You know, something that we do so often, or that you would even have an opinion on, like the way you gasped at when I. When I said that I go, I would Multiple go more times than, a week. Yeah, what? That... I had a friend a few years ago, and this was so freeing to me. She said something like, "Oh yeah, I just go to the grocery store every day at, to our neighborhood grocery store." And I looked at her again. I had little kids, so to me that just I went, I'm like, "Why would you do that? That's so hard." But she didn't, mm-hmm. right? She mm-hmm. was like, "Oh yeah, I do." And I, I think I sort of looked at her weirdly because she because she said, "I know you're laughing at me, but here's why: I just go and get what I need to eat for dinner and then for breakfast the next day, and then I don't have to think about anything else. I don't overbuy. I just buy what I need for that, and then hmm. I go home. My kids are older. It's uh, the neighborhood grocery store. It's not that far away. I don't overbuy. I find that she's like maybe I'm spending more money. Maybe I'm not, but it just works for me. Hmm. And I. <laughs> thought about that because it's the same thing. I'm like, I don't want to go every day. But everybody has like weird individual grocery habits, whether we admit them or not. Or not. So in in order to live a more, you know, conscious life, right? A little bit more of an intentional life. I mean, think about your grocery store habits. What are those things that like that you are doing that you might not even be aware of? Hmm. Like you may be overbuying every time you go. So if you go every day, like you probably are spending more money, but maybe not. Are you disciplined? Are you not? Um, In this same sort of study that I read, it said that 80% of us identify ourselves as list makers. But the question, and and maybe it's more telling within the question, we self-identify as list makers. Are you a list maker? You bet I am. (laughs) Do we actually have any sort of list when we go to the grocery store? I bet that statistic is far less. You're listening to The Lisa Show. 